0: Over 600,000 dead, nearly 34 million cases. Life changed forever as we know it. Yeah, the coronavirus pandemic messed with the United States, whether people contracted COVID or not. Despite mass vaccinations and lower rates of infections in the U.S., the post-COVID-19 recovery is far from over. This includes post-traumatic stress disorder for new or continuing symptoms, with little to no relief available. I'm Gustavo Ariano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Today's June 23rd, 2021. Las Vegas Raiders player Carl Nassib is the first ever NFL player to come out as gay. Spain pardons jailed leaders of Catalonia's independence movement. And yesterday was the 50th anniversary of Joni Mitchell's legendary album, Blue. Okay, boomers, this record rocks. Today, we'll talk about the lingering physical and emotional effects of COVID-19 and how we can get to a place where those afflicted can heal. We talked to Dr. Jonathan Sharon, Director of Mental Health for Los Angeles County. And we also talked to Fiona Lowenstein. She's a COVID-19 survivor, and she started a support group for those who continue to endure its aftermath. Fiona Lowenstein is a founder and president of Body Politic, a queer feminist wellness collective. Through it, she launched the COVID-19 Survivor Support Group after Fiona and her partner contracted COVID-19 back in March of 2020. What started as a small Instagram group chat has now spread to other online platforms. Today, there are thousands of people who connect, give and seek advice and offer messages of hope. Fiona, welcome to The Times.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: You use the term long COVID or COVID long haulers. What does that entail?
1: Yeah, so long COVID is a, is a patient coined term. It was actually um, named by a, a patient in Italy, in Lombardy, um, Elisa Perego is her name. Um, and so long COVID, COVID long haulers, it's also referred to as PASC by the NIH now, which means post-acute sequelae of SARS-CoV-2. Um, all of those terms generally refer to patients who contract COVID-19 and remain sick for you know more than the two to four weeks that, that a mild case or a non-hospitalized case is supposed to recover. Within um, Now, I will mention it's an umbrella term. So it currently includes, you know, folks who were hospitalized, folks who were on um, ventilators. And some of those people have post ICU syndrome, people with organ damage. But then there's also this subset um, of people who were not hospitalized or had these initially mild or asymptomatic infections and now have kind of multi systemic issues.
0: You yourself got COVID-19 in March, part of that first wave that hit New York City so hard. How isolating was that experience for you?
1: Oh, it was tough. I mean, I think, you know, we call ourselves first waivers, those of us who got sick in the spring in uh, New York City and and around the U.S. um, and obviously around the world as well. It was very difficult. And I think there's a unique kind of set of issues facing people who got sick in that first wave of the pandemic. I was incredibly lucky because I got sick kind of right before the healthcare system in New York City became completely overwhelmed. So I had a really good primary care provider I'd known for years, right? She suggested I go to the I went, I was seen, I was given a COVID-19 test, I was hospitalized. You know, at the same time that was happening to me, I have since read stories of Black women in my same city who were calling 911 saying they had shortness of breath and were being told it's just anxiety, right? So there was definitely an aspect of timing that played a role and also just an aspect of, you know, my privilege as a white person, someone who had this primary care provider already. Um, So I think a lot of those patients who got sick at the same time I did, they don't have those positive COVID tests like I have. And so they've, spent the past year really fighting to be treated, and many of them have had to treat themselves at home, and I've seen the toll that that has taken on their recoveries. I have made an almost full recovery. I had the financial privilege to quit most of my paid work and rest and pace and follow up with my care team. A lot of other folks had to manage it on their own, and as a result, you know, potentially as a result, they are now still sick a year afterward and in some cases permanently uh, chronically ill or disabled.
0: It's been more than a year since the country shut down offices and businesses to stop the spread of coronavirus. And while people continue to get sick from COVID-19 around the world here in the U.S., cases are waning. It feels like COVID-19 is a quote unquote over for some, at least. And that's also the narrative that a lot of the media is giving out. But not many people realize how COVID-19 lingers in so many other ways.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you brought up kind of the, the reopening that's going on now. And I can say that I'm seeing a lot of concern from long COVID patients who have been able to, you know, and this is this is only a small group, but who have been able to maintain their full time work remotely. And now that there's pressure to come back into the office and, you know, do commutes and and all of that stuff, they're very worried about how they're going to manage these symptoms with, with a full time job. And I think we've seen thus far that the disability benefit system really is not accommodating these folks folks, and they're not the first population to have problems with it. Um, so, so there's definite concern, I think, on the part of not just people with long COVID, but a lot of people with related chronic illnesses and disabilities that you know we're moving forward and declaring an end to the pandemic, but we're not really including some of our most marginalized populations.
0: And also just people who <laughs> who know that COVID is still out there. And if you open too fast, you'll have a lot of the damage that this country has already seen in, in just in the past year when we opened too fast earlier.
1: Absolutely. I mean, that's that's a huge concern. As you mentioned, we're seeing, you know, infection rates in other countries are not going down. Um, we're also not reaching the vaccination levels that we want to reach here in the United States. Not to mention that a lot of the zip codes, you know, I live in New York City, a lot of the zip codes that were hit hardest by, you know, rates of infection, hospitalization have the lowest vaccination rates. So who really is bearing, you know, the brunt of the burden when when we reopen too quickly? And then, you know, when you, when you talk about the global aspect, there is that question as well as, of course, it's really important to be, you know, talking about what's going on in Southeast Asia and and in Africa right now. But we also can't turn away from U.S. patients here. And I think that's a mistake that was made, you know, during the HIV AIDS epidemic to some degree. We really glossed over the impact on Black Americans in the United States kind of after 1995, 1996 or so. And so I'm I'm worried that that's going to happen again now just with regards to the media coverage.
0: We'll have more after this break. Fiona, when did you realize that a support group was badly needed for people like that?
1: I felt very much erased from the media narrative in, in those early months. I was 26 when I got sick, otherwise healthy. You know, I, I was a fitness instructor and a dog walker. That was part of how I paid my rent. So I was definitely like the person that the media was saying should be able to ride this out at home like a common flu. And so I think when it became clear that that was not the case, um, I started sharing my story on social media and hearing from so many other people like me, a lot of young people who were living alone in a city where they didn't have family and, you know, trying to manage this thing on their own and and having trouble getting access to care because they were young. And then there was the fact that even like the CDC symptom list was super outdated for a very long time. I mean, we didn't have anything other than respiratory symptoms listed there for for a while. And I experienced GI issues, hives, rashes, migraines, severe fatigue, um, post-exertional malaise, which is, you know, your symptoms worsening every time you exert yourself physically or mentally or emotionally. So it was clear that, that there needed to be a place where, you know, patients could exchange information. And that in this circumstance, community info sharing was actually going to be, I think, more impactful than waiting for a slow medical or scientific establishment to produce, you know, peer reviewed studies, which can take months or years. We're still waiting for really good research on what causes long COVID and how it can be treated. Now we have 11,000 patients on Slack and, you know, they talk about everything from, from healthcare advocacy and how to actually make that difference with your clinician or find a clinician who understands long COVID um, to, you know, the latest emerging long COVID symptoms, whether it's hair loss or menstrual issues or neurological issues or whatever, you know, is going on right now that isn't getting as much attention as it should.
0: I know this sounds like a silly question, but how do you get people to join your group, to ask your group? Because especially, say, if you don't know what the symptoms are or you had it and then you're still wondering about it, but the tests show negative, the people who got infected or the people who have been suffering or even people who never got COVID but never left have anxiety, they feel that shame into not asking for help, even asking for help from a group as supportive as the group that you run.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there are stigmas associated with having COVID. Um, you know, in certain cases, it, it precludes your ability to work, right, if you get a, a positive COVID test. Um, I've, I've heard stories of, of people, you know, experiencing shaming from their neighbors or family members. And also, there's the shame of not getting better when you think you're supposed to get better. So, you know, for me, I, as a journalist and someone who's worked in media, that was kind of the way I got the word out. I, I was writing about my own experience, trying to destigmatize it and also elevate the voices of other folks in, in my new community of long COVID patients. You know, to kind of show these people look like all of us. They're all different ages. They're all different races. It it can happen to any of us.
0: How can we then get these voices heard, especially those people who everything's opening up and they're rightfully scared? Again, we just went through a -a once-in-a-century pandemic. You can't blame people for not wanting to just jump in immediately into whatever normal's going to look like.
1: You know, I often tell people, as much as we might want to go back to normal, normal is what got us here to some extent, right? So, so this is an opportunity. When everything breaks down, it is an opportunity to rebuild something better. You know, we can't move forward in a world where we really see, you know, the disability population and the chronically ill population as a separate population that we can ignore. Um, that that hasn't worked, and I think. I often say that COVID nineteen is, and I've seen you know other folks say this as well, probably the largest mass disabling event in in our lives and in modern history. So, are we going to use that wake up call to build something better, or are we just going to kind of keep ignoring it and moving forward? I think the answer is definitely amplifying and uplifting the voices of those who have been marginalized from these conversations. And I've learned so much from disability justice activists in the past year. You know things that that I was unfortunately unaware of before I got sick and and needed these tools. Um, and so I hope that those conversations start to happen more broadly and and with more populations.
0: For people who do have pandemic PTSD, what are some tips to cope?
1: It's tough. I mean, I think that, you know, you you need to have people around you who understand what you're going through, and sometimes that's just one person, and I'll also say that sometimes that that one friend exists online. Um, who I've poured my heart out to the past year, who have really been there for me, who have understood my struggle, have been other sick and disabled people that I've met online, other long COVID patients and survivors. Um, And so those forums I think are, are a great place to kind of work through some of those feelings. You know I'm also really encouraging everyone right now and this is very difficult when it comes to the return to work because we're all in different situations with our employers but to to take it as slowly as you want if you can you know and and to and to try whenever possible to never push back against someone who seems like they're being too cautious you know when you go grocery shopping is is a sign of I think protecting others um, and so it's it's sad that folks are being shamed for that but um I think you know it comes down to just finding that community of support wherever you can even if it's virtual and and being being patient with yourself because we have been through something exceptionally traumatic. And, um, you know, it's, some of us might want to jump right into hot girl summer for others. It might take a little longer and that's fine.
0: And finally, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing a lot better. You know, I, I had, um, again i had that luxury to really rest and pace early on and i and also to get care get supplemental oxygen so that i was not in a state of hypoxia for months which is something that you know has gone on with other patients Um, And that made a huge impact in my recovery. I was able to resume full-time work in late June, 2020. Um, I did deal with really severe menstrual issues for months after that. And this is something a lot of people who menstruate have been talking about. For me, it was like flu-like symptoms, fatigue. I was bed bound for about a week every month. Um, But the vaccine actually... Made most of those issues disappear for me. That's that's not the case for every long COVID patient. I think it's been a little bit overblown in the in the news. And I know people who have not gotten better and have you know are feeling worse after the vaccine or having trouble seeing those stories. Um, but I I was lucky in that sense. I don't think I'll ever be the person that I was before I got COVID. I mean I'm still relearning my body, and this is also a novel virus that we're probably not going to understand the long term impacts of for a while. You know, I'm I'm still taking it slowly. I'm still being cautious. Um, I'm re- was really excited to hug my parents for the first time in a year after we all got vaccinated, but I would say that's pretty much the only people that I've hugged in a year. So it feels amazing to uh, to be able to step outside of my my small New York City apartment where I spent most of the pandemic. So that's been very nice.
0: Thank you so much for this interview, Fiona.
1: Thanks. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Fiona Lowenstein is a founder and president of Body Politic and their COVID-19 Survivor Support Group. Coming up, more on the generational and community impacts of COVID-19 with the Los Angeles County Director of Mental Health. I spoke to him last year at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, when he predicted a rise in psychological trauma from the disease. Few areas of the United States suffered more through COVID-19 than Los Angeles County. Over 1.2 million cases, nearly 25,000 deaths, in an area already beset by health inequities, where essential workers, long stretched thin, had to help others before they could help themselves. Dr. Jonathan Sharon is the Director of Mental Health for Los Angeles County. Dr. Sharon, welcome to The
2: Times. Thanks for having me again, Gustavo.
0: Dr. Sharon, are you concerned about specific mental health issues right now in the aftermath of COVID-19 or not even the aftermath? We're still in COVID-19. The
2: the things that concern me now, Gustavo, are the things that have been concerning me all along. While we, uh, you know, have great vaccines and the vaccination rates, uh, thanks to the public health department, you know, in L.A. County are pretty high. But that doesn't mean that everything is solved. And coming out of, um, you know, the isolation and the disconnection, just because it's a great thing doesn't mean it's going to be simple. And it doesn't mean it's going to be without stress, because it's yet again, another change, you know, and we have a significant portion of the population that's refusing to get vaccinated. And that's a personal choice at this point, And that must be honored. But how do we commingle vaccinated and unvaccinated folks? How do we uh, resume You know, the workplace. There are many people in the Department of Mental Health who want to work from home. There are many people that want to come back. So, there are a whole new set of challenges as we develop new routines, new algorithms for how we function as individuals, as groups, uh, you know, as communities. And those will provoke stress. And we have to do them in a way that is, you know, as thoughtful. Uh, and recognizes our ongoing need to heal in the process. The
0: last time we talked was over a year ago for a previous podcast that I did, Coronavirus in California, Stories from the Front Lines. You predicted then that pandemic PTSD would become a thing. And here we are. How did you know this was going to happen?
2: I don't think these things are that surprising, but they're very concerning. And and I will say at the outset of this podcast, post-traumatic injury really is a term that I much prefer to post-traumatic stress disorder, which really comes out of the military community. And while post-traumatic injury is real, so is post-traumatic growth. And I think we have to flip the script uh, over time in order to come out of this whole fiasco um, of really unprecedented proportion, stronger, more resilient, and tighter knit uh, as a larger community.
0: Thank you so much for that clarification, and frankly, that correction. So post-traumatic injury, it could come in all forms. Knowing this, are there traits specific to COVID nineteen?
2: That's not entirely clear. I will say that, you know, the coronavirus as an infectious agent provokes significant inflammation throughout the body, throughout our organ systems. And it does so certainly in the brain. And now, of course, the topic of the day I would say is adjacent to that issue, and it's, you know, the mental health or psychological impact. The isolation, uh, the unknown, the fear, uh, the breakdown in uh, social structure, the loss of resources, uh, the loss of family members, the loss of friends, uh, the loss of an understanding of how we navigate our, our daily existence. And this is a challenge and we can expect it to continue to provoke psychological stress, which can show up in terms of anxiety symptoms, in terms of depressive symptoms or worsening of existing Uh, mental health challenges, Uh, but at the end of the day, if we capitalize on the lessons learned and we together pave a pathway forward where we are empowered and we find new purpose uh, as a society, I think that we have an opportunity to do something great. Dr.
0: Sharon, who's being affected most by post-traumatic injury in the aftermath of COVID-19? This is obviously a pandemic that everyone was affected one way or another, but some communities were affected more than others
2: in terms of the disparate impacts communities that really have suffered for a long time uh, from structural inequity and frankly structural racism have been impacted significantly more and that shows up in every statistics including things as crude as death rates but when you look at populations more broadly you know our kids have had to you know pivot in ways that are are very unprecedented and we don't know the impact We do know that there's a lot more um, anxiety and depression uh, in the school-aged population. We have not seen in L.A. County an increase in suicide rates. However, there have been reports in other jurisdictions of an increase in suicide amongst the young population. At the same time, we have to identify kids and families that are suffering significantly and get to them early and provide them with services uh, for mental health as well as for other uh, issues that are stressors. I mean, people have to be stably employed and people need a place to live that's dignified and that is calm and that is safe. Uh, These things have been threatened. And if we don't go after them now, we're going to suffer the consequences uh, long-term. You know, it's much more than the biological agent. Um, It's much more than the fear of dying or losing someone. These are long-term generational challenges and we must meet the moment. What what do you tell your
0: colleagues then in terms of taking care of themselves?
2: I say to them the same thing I say to anybody. Um, first of all, it's really important to stay connected to people. Uh, you know, you can't work to the point where you're no longer interacting with your, you know, with your family, with your kids, um, with your friends um, and with your neighborhood. And some people, frankly, I think have expanded their networks with the advent of technology. The other thing is routines. I mean, it's important to sleep. Uh, Sleep routines have been disrupted. If you got a new one, that's fine. Stick with it. Get enough rest. Eat good food. You know, these are really simple things. Um, And obviously, you know, uh, alcohol, drugs, these are dangerous things. And people, I believe, have been using in ways that we still don't understand that are very unhealthy and are going to continue to show up uh, probably for the long haul. So it's really basic stuff about keeping or establishing routines Uh, that that allow you to stay connected and grounded and balance your life.
0: Thank you so much for this interview, Doctor.
2: You bet. It's an honor, and I appreciate you elevating this topic.
0: That was Dr. Jonathan Sharon, Los Angeles County Director of Mental Health. You can get more information on resources at dmh.lacounty.gov forward slash resources. They also have a helpline available 24 hours a day. 1-800-854-7771. Again, 1-800-854-7771. And that's it for this episode of The Times. Daily news from the L.A. Times. Tomorrow, Katie Hill resigned as Congresswoman due to being a victim of revenge porn. Now she's advocating for a bill to help out future victims. Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Stephen A. Cuevas, and Denise Guerra. Our executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. Our editor is Shawnee Hilton. Our intern is Ashley Brown. And our theme music is by Andrew Epen. I'm Gustavo Arellano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news in this Monday. Gracias.